Welcome to Behold and Become, a podcast about faith with me, Robert Black. Welcome to episode 40 of Behold and Become. This episode is being released on February 2nd, 2021, which in the church is known as the Feast of the Presentation of Our Lord Jesus Christ. This church holiday gets very little attention in our culture, or even in most churches, but it is a rich and holy day worth our commemorating it. In the Episcopal Church, this is actually one of three feasts that, when it falls on a Sunday, would take precedence on that day. And this actually happened a year ago. February 2nd, 2020, was a Sunday. The previous Sunday was the third Sunday after the Epiphany, and the following Sunday was the fifth Sunday after the Epiphany. But we skipped the fourth Sunday after the Epiphany because the Feast of the Presentation was observed on February 2nd. So why February 2nd, you might ask? Well, because of Scripture. In Exodus 13, 12 through 15, we read, You shall set apart to the Lord all that the first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your livestock that are males shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn donkey you shall redeem with a sheep. If you do not redeem it, you must break its neck. Every firstborn male among your children you shall redeem. When in the future your child asks you, What does this mean? You shall answer, By strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from from human firstborn to the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord every male that first opens the womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. And then Leviticus 12, verses 2 through 8, further clarifies. If a woman conceives and bears a male child, she shall be ceremonially unclean for seven days, as at the time of her menstruation she shall be unclean. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Her time of blood purification shall be thirty-three days. She shall not touch anything holy or come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. If she bears a female child, she shall be unclean for two weeks, as in her menstruation. Her time of blood purification shall be sixty-six days. When the days of her purification are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb in his first year for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. He shall offer it to the Lord and make atonement on her behalf. Then she shall be clean from her flow of blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, male or female. If she cannot afford a sheep... She shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement on her behalf, and she shall be clean. So there's a lot going on in these two passages, but there are parts that we should hold on to before reading the pertinent passage about the presentation that involves Mary and Jesus in Luke. And those points are that all firstborn belong to God. This is a hearkening back to the Exodus and makes that saving grace of God in the Passover present anew in every generation and further reminds us that God is always the sovereign and the owner of our lives and of each generation. 
Secondly, the time of the purification is a total of 40 days for a male child. Remember that. Seven days and then the 33 days. While this might sound like a little bit of superstition or even misogynistic practice, it's really quite the contrary. For one, there was a deeply held Jewish belief that blood contained the life of a person or an animal. And in a sense, it does. Without blood, we are dead, right? We have machines that can breathe for people, and we can shock their hearts back into beating. We can artificially hydrate and nourish people who cannot eat. And we even use that term brain dead to distinguish someone that is essentially dead, but still has vital signs due to artificial means from someone who's really and fully dead. But you know what we don't have? Technology as a means of keeping someone alive without blood flowing through their body. Sure, we can do transfusions, but that's exactly the point. We have to add blood to keep the person alive. So embedded within this Jewish way of viewing life is a rather accurate understanding that blood is necessary for life, which is what makes blood a very holy thing. So when people come into contact with blood, they are coming into touch with the lifeblood, pun intended, of something, which is actually quite holy, and it requires a set amount of time to be purified after such an experience, and all the more in the case of birth, which certainly involves blood, but also new life. It makes it a extremely holy thing. This sequestration is not about being squeamish around bodily fluids. Rather, it is about holiness and reverence. And it certainly is not misogynistic. What is misogynistic is our culture that would have a woman give birth and then expect her to be responding to work-related emails the following day and back at the office perhaps as soon as next week. Forty days is a minimum, but all new mothers and fathers should have time to bond as a family when a new child enters the family. And this practice does that. It says that all of the new mother's other obligations, even coming to the temple, is put on hold for at least 40 days surrounding the sacredness of a birth. Leviticus then spells out the offering that's to be made at the presentation, a lamb and a pigeon or a turtle dove, unless the family is poor, then two turtle doves or two pigeons will suffice. So with those things that I've just highlighted in mind, let us now turn to reading Luke 2, verses 22 through 40. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it was written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus in to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. 
and the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age, having lived with her husband for seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of eighty-four. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Okay, so there's a lot of things going on in this text that we might talk about, and I'm not going to try to preach a mini-sermon on all of them, but sort of like a tour guide, I just want to point out some of these things and trust that you will ask me if you have further questions, or you can contemplate these things on your own and have a conversation with God about them. So the first thing to note is that Jesus' family is clearly following the Jewish law. It's always worth repeating. Jesus was Jewish, and so any anti-Semitism has no place in the church. If the Old Testament and the law didn't matter and were superseded by the New Testament, then we wouldn't have this passage in Luke. But we do, and that's important. This encounter at the temple shows us that no one, not even St. Mary, is above the law. So we ought not to think that we can shirk our religious duties and callings. Next, notice that the offering that is made is a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. This is not the normal sacrifice. This is the exception that we saw in Leviticus for families that are too poor to afford a sheep. And so this tells us that the Holy Family lived below what we would call the poverty line. Jesus was poor which is why serving those in poverty is such an important spiritual practice, because in the face of the poor, we see the face of Christ. In the Song of Simeon, we receive the lovely canticle known as the Nuctimitus, which we say or sing each night in evening prayer. It connects Jesus to the hope of Israel that the prophets have testified to, and it also points towards the fact that the Messiah of Israel will also be the Savior of all the world. After this bit of prophecy, Simeon then tells Mary and Joseph that Jesus is destined for the rising and falling of many in Israel, a signal of the contentious nature of Jesus' ministry as he reveals the inner thoughts of many as he speaks and preaches the truth about God and ourselves. And then Simeon clarifies to Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul too, a foreshadowing of the horrors that Mary will witness on Good Friday as her son is crucified. Isn't this a truth that we all know as parents, that when our children suffer, we suffer? It reminds us all of Jesus' life and ministry happens in the shadow of the cross. The cross was not an unfortunate conclusion to an otherwise good ministry. No, the cross was the trajectory of the Incarnation. And there was another prophet there, Anna. She also praised God for this child who would be the redemption of the people. Though Luke does not record her words verbatim, her inclusion is a reminder that God can and does speak equally through both men and women. 
Now, I know that in our tradition, this is not really a point that's debated, but for some other traditions, the presentation narrative would offer a needed corrective to the inclusion of women in all forms of ministry. Now, that's just a quick walk through this passage of Luke 2. Though the prayer book calls this the Feast of the Presentation, there are actually other names associated with it. It used to be called the Feast of the Purification, putting a little bit more of the emphasis on Mary. And to be fair, the biblical text really is more about her. The reason why they were coming to the temple 40 days after December 25th is that that was the end of her time of purification. But just as the Feast of the Circumcision on January 1st was rebranded as the Feast of the Holy Name, so too has the purification become the presentation. It's a signal that our culture still gets a little uncomfortable when we talk about bodily functions and body parts in the church. Another name, though, for this feast is Candlemas. Now, dating back to the 300s, there were liturgies where there was a procession to the church, sort of like the Holy Family's procession to the temple for the presentation, and they would carry candles and sing the Nuke Dimittis, hence the name Candlemas, because there was a Mass, a Eucharist, with lots of candles. This is one of the oldest feasts that the church has kept. The candles would often be blessed, and so the lights that would be used in the home for the rest of the year, because remember, they had no electricity back then, would always connect the families of the church to this presentation and this feast of the Holy Family. It also used to be that a passage from Zephaniah was read on this day, and it included the line, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps. So you can see the connection to candles there as well. Now, the typical first reading that we use comes from Malachi, which also includes a wonderful line, See, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Well, that's what's happening here. The temple is the Lord's, and Jesus is the Lord. And so on the Feast of the Presentation, the Lord is coming into his temple. Now, it also used to be that the Christmas season lasted from December 25th until February 2nd, the Feast of the Presentation, or Candlemas. So if your tree or your lights are still up, as long as you take them down today, you can just tell people, I'm not lazy. I'm celebrating the Christmas season as it was done in the ancient church. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that for us, February 2nd, is better known as Groundhog Day than it is the Feast of the Presentation. Now, of course, Groundhog Day is a secular holiday that really is much ado about nothing. But there actually might be a connection between these two holidays. February 2nd is the midpoint between the winter solstice and the spring equinox. So this date has often been marked by people who pay attention to the cycles of nature, because from this point, things are slowly moving towards the warmth of spring. But as we all know, winter is not done with us yet. And there's an old English poem that goes, If Candlemas be fair and bright, come winter, have another flight. If Candlemas bring clouds and rain, go winter, and come not again. So it seems that this date has been associated with weather-related prognostication for quite a while. As our modern legend goes, if the groundhog sees his shadow, meaning it's fair and bright, then come winter, have another flight. But if it's cloud and rainy on Candlemas, there won't be sunlight to cast shadows, so winter will go and come not again. 
Now, when it comes to our faith, I'm not sure that this amounts to anything at all, but it's still interesting. So what does all of this mean? Well, turning to the collect appointed for this day is always helpful in determining that. Almighty and ever-living God, we humbly beseech thee that, as thy only begotten Son was this day presented in the temple, so we may be presented unto thee with pure and clean hearts, by the same thy Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, so this prayer tells us that the feast is about helping us to know that we have been presented by Christ and bought back through his sacrifice as the Lamb of God. And there's another lovely collect that comes from the Book of Occasional Services that includes a liturgy for Candlemas. O God, you have made this day holy by the presentation of your Son in the temple and by the purification of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Mercifully grant that we who delight in her humble readiness to be the birth-giver of the Only Begotten may rejoice forever in our adoption as his sisters and brothers, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. What I appreciate about that prayer is that it makes it clear that what makes the day holy is Jesus. And the petition is that we might be united to Christ and rejoice in the fact that we have been adopted into the family of God. And while I've pointed to several different parts of this feast and the scriptural readings associated with it, at the heart of this day is that Jesus is presented to us by the grace of God so that we might know of God's deep and abiding love for us. And in turn, we are then presented to be righteous before God, not on account of our works, but rather on the righteousness of Christ. A quick way to remember what this feast is about is right there in the name, present. It's about the present of God's grace that we have been given in Jesus Christ. And certainly, this is a feast worth keeping. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And the blessing of God, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen.